Welcome to Clear as Quantum, a podcast from Equus, funded by the Australian Research Council, about quantum science and the exciting technologies that are just around the corner. In this spooky podcast at a distance, we'll try to dust the cobwebs out of the quantum physics realm that's entangling our lives. I'm Lachlan Rogers from Newcastle, and lately I've been thinking a lot about how students can sit open book exams. And I'm Yasmin Svenler, based in Brisbane, and I've actually managed to squeeze a soliton solution out of my non-linear hydrodynamical equations. Yay! Well, today we're talking to another one of Equus's experts in quantum science, John Bartholomew from uh, the University of Sydney. I'm looking forward to this interview a lot because I happen to overlap with John back when we were PhD students. So although John's work was on a slightly different topic from mine, we, we shared a lab pretty close together with, with officers at the Australian National University. And I will admit that at times I had science envy about some of the cool things that John was doing, except for on one occasion. John, do you remember when you borrowed the stress apparatus that was good at squeezing crystals that I'd been using on diamonds and used it to smash your softer crystal to smithereens? Yeah, that's right. During my PhD, I had a look at how the transitions of the, the rare earth atoms in crystals shifted with pressure. Um, and so we, we had a go with the pressure setup that was used for diamond. Uh, and uh, yeah, our crystals came off second best, that was for sure. <laughs> well, it's great to have you here, John. And we want to talk about some of the work that you're doing and that you have been doing. But the title of this episode is the word coherence. And I was thinking a bit about this. Um, we use it in conversation often in its negative version, incoherent. We, we describe maybe someone on social media as being incoherent. Uh, meaning that we can't even understand them. So coherence or something being coherent might have something to do with us being able to understand it. And then the other thing that I was exploring was co and here, so the sort of parts of the word, sticking things together. So maybe it, we're going to see if we can explore how this word coherence comes up so often in our discussions of quantum science. But just before we get there, John, do you want to just give us a quick overview? Where has your journey into this study of quantum coherence taken you and, and how have you ended up where you are? Yeah, so I mean, my, my story sort of dates back to, to, to mid high school when I moved from a small town called Corowa, right on the New South Wales Victoria border to Canberra. And when I, when I moved to Canberra, some, some researchers from the ANU came to my high school and I had this pamphlet. And if you can imagine, you know, a little flyer that comes out, you know, to advertise master's degrees. And the ANU had just started, I think it was a new master's in photonics. On the front of this pamphlet was this crystal with uh, different colors of laser beams sort of shining through the crystal. And the question that one of the researchers asked me was, how, how do we move beyond CDs? How do we get more storage than what you can on CDs? CDs are kind of two-dimensional. What could we do? And so the, the discussion kind of centered around, well, you know, we could move to 3D. What if we had a, a storage element where you could store information on, on a voxel rather than a pixel? And I thought that was a really cool idea. And I was like, okay, photonics, this must be the thing for me. So anyway, long after that, I'd, I'd forgotten about that discussion. And I, I was doing science at ANU. And I had a, a guest examiner for one of the courses I was doing. And he was asking a few questions about sort of laser physics and holography. And he invited me to his lab. And so I went and I got to the front door of the lab and lo and behold, there was this picture of the, of the crystal <laughs> with these multicolored laser beams shining through it. And I was like, well, this must be a sign. This was meant to be. 
Um, and so I went into the lab and one of the first things I was shown was uh, liquid helium filling up in a, in a bath cryostat. And so the, the combination of the crystal with multiple, multiple colored laser beams shining through it and liquid helium. And I think I was hooked at that stage. And so I did, I did some undergraduate research with that particular researcher, which was Matt Sellers uh, at the Australian National University, uh, went on to do a PhD uh, in that group as well. Uh, and then did a couple of postdocs, one uh, at a group uh, in Paris and one at a group in Los Angeles or just outside of Los Angeles in Pasadena at Caltech. Uh, and then in 2019, was lucky enough to be able to come back to Australia to work at the University of Sydney and start my own group there. Uh, and so over the last two years, I've uh, been slowly navigating the, the uncertain situation that, that everyone's had to deal with at the moment to try and build a lab to do some quantum science experiments in, in, at the University of Sydney. That's cool. So let's see if we can start unpacking this word coherence just a little bit. How, how does this keyword in quantum, how does it come up in the sort of research that you do? Yeah, so in, in my research, what I focus on a lot is talking about how do we store quantum information? So I've worked quite a bit with quantum memory systems. And so this, this word coherence represents how long we can hold on to quantum information. If we think about quantum information as being a particular superposition of two energy levels, then what I want to hold on to is the relationship between those two energy levels. And so that's the, the population, you know, what's the, you know, the, the fraction, if you like, of population between these two states, but also what the relative phase of those two states are. Uh, and so both of those pieces of the puzzle are important for quantum information. And so the coherence tells me something about how long I can hold on to that superposition before it, I, I guess, disappears through coupling to the, to the rest of the environment. Can I say that the coherence is sort of the boundary between the realm of quantum physics, where objects are governed by the laws of quantum mechanics, and the realm of daily life, where quantum mechanics is not really playing a role in any measurable or conceivable way? I, I think that's a, that's a really good way of looking at it. The way that I preserve quantum information is to prevent it from leaking out of the system to the rest of the world. This coherence is in some ways describing how well I'm confining that, that energy or that, that information to the system of interest rather than it leaching out into the environment. And so the more leaching you have, then the more your system starts to look like the classical realm rather than the quantum realm. So I, I think that thinking of coherence as, as a good indicator of the boundary between quantum physics and, and classical physics is a good way to look at it. Right, because the big difference with the systems that we're all working in is, is that you have to contain it in some way and protect it against all of that chaos that is rampant in daily life, all of the air molecules that are bouncing around, all of the heat fluctuations and all that kind of stuff. So is that what you are trying to optimize for to avoid this decoherence? or the loss of coherence or the loss of information? Yeah, so I, I think you've hit there on, on what is the fundamental challenge of realizing technologies leveraging quantum mechanics, which is the fact that to preserve the quantumness of the system, what we really want to have is a perfectly isolated system so that all, all that information is contained in. But what we'd have then is something that we can't control, something that we can't access 
So the, 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 the real challenge in trying to build technologies is that you have to break that barrier. You have to break that isolation barrier to be able to control and access and leverage that system. But in doing so, you let some of the environment interact with your quantum system. The point at which quantum mechanical systems become interesting for technology is when access to that quantum mechanical system is sufficiently well defined and, and well controlled such that you only have the interactions that you want and the, the other interactions you're, you're suppressing as much as you can. So we alluded earlier to our shared interest in crystal materials. And when you talk about quantum systems and quantum memories, what does that look like for you in your lab? Yeah, so even, even within my field, what that can look like is, is very different. So the systems I work with, a, a good picture to have in your mind is a cube of transparent material. Looking at it, you wouldn't know whether it was a crystal or whether it was a piece of glass, but it is actually a crystalline structure. And if, if you look at it at room temperature, it just looks completely clear, looks uninteresting. You can look straight through it and it doesn't look like there's anything interesting happening. But when I want to use it as a quantum memory, what I want to do is to isolate it from some of these environmental effects. So what I do is to cool that crystal down at around a few degrees above absolute zero. Uh, and then I can start seeing some changes in, in the appearance of this, of this crystal. Um, so in particular, the atoms that I work with interact with, with light at a very specific frequency. And so if I have a laser that I'm changing the frequency of whilst it's passing through the crystal, when I hit the Goldilocks spot, the point where the atoms are interacting with that light, the crystal will begin to glow. One of the examples that we've worked with in the past is a europium-doped crystal. And so those europium atoms uh, interact very nicely with light, which is a sort of a golden yellow color. And so they'll absorb that energy, but then re-emit it uh, at a lower energy. So this is the picture that I described before where you have a, a, a sort of this golden yellow laser beam going through the crystal and then anywhere inside the crystal, it turns red because that's where the atoms are absorbing and then re-emitting that light. Um, and so you, you can come up with some quite stunning images of, you know, similar to your work, Lachlan, in terms of these glowing uh, crystals with multiple colours kind of going on. You really can see it, right? So even when it's in one of these fancy fridges, you, you can actually have a look? Yeah, correct. So in, in a lot of the systems, uh, you, you, have a, you have a window that you can see through. You can find these atoms by eye. You can sit there and tune your laser frequency and just wait till your crystal you know, starts glowing and then you know you're at the right frequency. I wanted to ask, you mentioned that, so you're working very close to absolute zero. Um, so the absolute zero is the lowest temperature that can possibly anything that exists can reach. I think it's quite interesting because there is actually no upper bound. There is only a lower bound. So you can always add more energy in principle. Uh, things can get hotter and hotter and hotter. And then it just goes into infinity. The molecules and the atoms that it's made up of, they just sort of absorb more energy and they, they move faster, etc. But the other way around, when you cool something down, you're going to remove a little bit of energy from those atoms and they start to move less and less and less until they almost freeze in place. But so there is a limit to that because once the atoms are almost standing still, you've extracted all of the energy out of them. 
And so that zero is at about minus 273 approximately degrees Celsius. Is that very difficult for you? Like what is involved into reaching these low temperatures? And the reason that I'm asking that is that I'm assuming that that is one of your main barriers of protection against decoherence or against the leaking of information. Yeah. Can you tell us some, something more about that? Yeah, so there's a couple of systems that people use in my field to, to get to the temperatures that we need to. And, and one of them is actually quite straightforward in some ways. If you are able to liquefy helium, um, which you can do if you have a sufficiently good compressor and pure enough helium, that liquid will be at a temperature of around four Kelvin, so four degrees above absolute zero. And so one way to cool these crystals is you make a, a well-insulated bucket fill it up with liquid helium, and then you just dunk your sample in. This works relatively well, but then the challenge is, is that you'll have little bits of helium boiling off. And so you'll get bubbles kind of breaking your signal. So the next step that you can do is that you connect a pump to that bucket and start pumping on the system to try and reduce the pressure. And as you bring the pressure down, the helium changes from a normal liquid to a superfluid. You drop the pressure just a tiny bit and suddenly it just goes very, very still and calm. Um, so that's one way. That's a simple way. And with that system, you can actually get down to if you can pump hard enough um, to below one Kelvin. So less than one degree above absolute zero. The other way is to have a, a closed cycle system, which only uses gas and only creates this liquid in a, in a small part of your overall fridge. They work on the same principles as your, as your fridges at home. They just don't use the same coolant. Uh, so we, we're, we're at the moment, I'm, I'm literally building one of these systems and, and seeing all the components go together and what you need to, to the plumbing and, the, and all the other accessories that you need to, to try and cool, you know, to down to these temperatures. As someone who's witnessed this being done by a professional and not to, not to say that you're not a professional by, but by someone who is in the business of building fridges for other people, I am so impressed. This is, this is a Herculean effort. <laughs> It's a bit nerve-wracking, I'll have to say, uh, given with a few of these things, you only get one shot. Yeah, it, it's, it's a bit of an adventure. Fingers crossed it's going well. If all goes well, we've got a GoPro set up in the lab that's been running since the, the lab construction project started. You know, eventually people will be able to see this process in, in motion with the time lapse of the GoPro. That sounds really cool. Um, so two things come to mind, John. The, the size, you, you compared it already in function. To, to the fridge that I might have in my kitchen. Are you talking about a device that you're building that's about the same size as a, as a kitchen fridge or is it much smaller? Because quantum things are usually really tiny or is it, is it huge? So the, the one that I'm building is quite large. Imagine, I guess it's three white beer kegs standing on top of each other. That's about as, as tall as it would be. And it's sitting on a frame, which is about a meter by a meter and a half. Um, and that's just the bit that sits inside the lab. Okay. And then you have a few connections to where we put all the pumps and everything like that. And, and that system by itself is about the size of a fridge. So if we do want to be able to put a, one of your quantum memories in a pocketable device like my mobile phone, we've still got a little bit of engineering to sort out. The materials that I work with, it's unlikely that they're going to be able to work as quantum memories at room temperature. So we'll always need to, to have them at low temperatures, but smaller scale systems uh, exist on satellites right now. Um, there's systems up on the International Space Station right now too. So they, they might not be pocket sized, but they're certainly ones that could be transportable 
uh, and you could think about moving them around. Yeah. Wow, that's awesome. So coming back to coherence and to the idea of quantum memory, coherence is sort of how long can you store that quantum information? So that's the memory idea. But I'm accustomed to be able to store some digital photos and then call them back. I don't know. I can, I was, Google reminded me of some photos that I took 15 years ago because I know that you were involved in one of the very exciting results a few years ago for what was called in the field, what was called a very long coherence time. But people might be surprised at just how short coherence times really are, and yet they're still so useful. Coherence times are one of these things in the field where uh, it's very rare for people to report short coherence times. I think everyone has a long coherence time. It, it just depends what you're comparing to, what your yardstick is. Uh, and so for our systems, if you don't do anything to them, the amount of time that we can preserve a quantum state would be a fraction of a second. Um, for other systems, your coherence time will be a lot shorter, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it's not useful. It's, it's what you can do with your quantum information in the time that you can preserve it that matters. We're really looking to develop systems that could preserve quantum information for much, much longer periods of time. The, the experiment that, that I was lucky enough to be involved with at the Australian National University around 2013 to 2015 was an experiment where we showed that we could preserve a quantum state in a europium doped crystal for six hours. Wow. The previous record for our materials was around a minute. But the exciting thing for me about that result is that the student who, who led that work, who's now a, a professor in her own right, Nanjin Zhong, who's at SUSTEC in China, her work showed that we actually understand the system well enough that we can go beyond that six hours. You know, we might even be able to get out past a day like how how long can we push this system or you know this population term in in the in the superposition is is preserved for about a month so that's that's our upper bound that's what you know but i at the moment we're limited by the the magnetic fluctuations that occur around our our system and so uh fluctuating magnetic fields kind of shake our our atomic energy levels relative to one another and that causes our, our quantum information to decohere on the time scale of around six hours at the moment. But, but I'm hopeful that we can, we can push, that, push that up. I, I'd be really excited to, to, to crack the day mark. That would, be, that would be really exciting. So what you're saying is, because I've worked on some research projects in the past that have used the phrasing a quantum internet, you're saying that you might even be able to imagine building a quantum snail mail. Yeah, so there, I mean, other researchers in the field uh, or related fields have called it the quantum sneaker net. This this idea in network theory that I, I think there's a famous example in a textbook where you attach uh, hard drives to a Saint Bernard and then you know send it down the road. <laughs> as long as your hard drives are high enough capacity, then you'll beat any network connection. Uh, famous example was the the Lord of the Rings trilogy that was filmed in New Zealand. A lot of the footage was captured to hard drive and then sent back to Hollywood for processing. <laughs> uh, so it's like when you're dealing with huge amounts of information, like really, really huge amounts of data, um, physical storage and then transportation, as long as that, that storage is high enough capacity and high enough efficiency when we start talking about the quantum uh, realm, then it becomes a feasible solution to do particular types of tasks. Yeah, that's, that's fascinating. People often think of, you know, Wi-Fi and radiation, but that's only the very end of the way that information reaches our desktop. It's mostly just the part that goes from the modem to the computer that's like three meters further. 
So I think I read somewhere that 99%, basically all of the intercontinental transfer of information, which is basically everything, goes via uh, this one bundle of optical fiber that transports everything currently. And so we have a really big dependence on that as well. So I know that when they started to lay these cables, for example, at one point, some country was cut off the internet for uh, a few hours or a day or something because some um, copper thief woman had been uh, messing with the cables <laughs> on some <laughs> beach. So it's quite fascinating how in this era of where we think that everything is in the cloud, that's not quite true. Everything is actually very physically on hard drives or you know, in cables. A lot of the inspiration that I draw for quantum networking comes from how classical networks operate at the moment. Classical information networks are one of the most successful ways that we've used, we've worked out how to communicate with each other on a global scale. And, you know, the combination of this, this physical storage, this, this sort of hard drive storage and servers and, you know, big, big server plants, um, and then to be able to ferry that information around using light through optical fibers has been tremendously successful. Quantum networking should be, you know, as a field is looking at all of these options. Can we use satellite links to shift quantum information around the globe? Can we use optical fiber networks? What does that require? Can we use physical storage and then transporting it? Is, is this a feasible option? Yeah, I mean, all of these avenues are being pursued. And I, and I think that what, that's what makes the, the field really exciting at the moment is that there's, there's critical technologies that need to be realized for all of these things which is one of the, the big challenges in the field at the moment. We have all these really terrific quantum systems, but they're, they're kind of isolated. They don't, they don't talk to one another. There's no adapter to, to harness the, the best things about each of these quantum systems. Um, and so, yeah, at the moment, the, the quantum world is very much sort of PC, Mac divide. There's, there's nothing, there's no adapters to go between them. Um, and so that, that's another aspect of quantum networking, which I'm, I'm really interested in is, is you know, can we build some adapters so that, you know, the superconducting qubits could plug into some of these really long-term quantum memories that like the systems that I work with. And, you know, maybe that has advantages in terms of scaling quantum computers. Maybe there's other technologies that we haven't even thought of yet that, that harness the best aspects of these different types of technologies. That's a cool idea. You, you've given me the idea for a quantum USB just a universal plug that you can just connect them all in. So <laughs> Apple will stall it. Ah, that's right. <laughs> um, John, one of the things we've discovered is that scientists get up to some pretty interesting adventures and go to interesting places. Uh, sometimes it's conferences or just visiting colleagues or collaborative things. Do you have any interesting stories of, of maybe a conference you've attended or something that was in a pretty cool location? Oh, I mean, for, for me, the, the whole journey has been just one big journey of discovery. Like, I mean, I, I grew up in a town that has a population, you know, that ranged between sort of 3,000 and 5,000 people. Uh, and I thought when I moved to Canberra, that was that was the big city. I thought I'd I'd, I'd made it. It's like, how how could anyone live in in some way that's that's bigger than than Canberra? Um, and I, my 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 supervisor tells I don't remember this, but but my supervisor from my PhD tells me that before I started my PhD, I, I made him promise that he wouldn't you know send me overseas for any extended period of time because I loved Canberra so much. Um, but I mean, since that time, it's completely like being being in science has, has, has completely changed my outlook. So, I, I mean, my, my first job outside of my PhD was in was in Paris. 
and the the lab was you know right in the right in the center of Paris near the you know near the Notre Dame Cathedral and and so I I you know walk back from the lab catch a catch the metro from the station and as I walk down the hill I just see the Eiffel Tower as growing up in in Coral I never thought I'd I'd have that kind of experience um, and then you know from there back you know over to the US and living in California and 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 being there in in in, in what was a you know a, a really interesting time in in America's history and perhaps world history um, and seeing uh, you know how how America was different to Australia but also how America was very similar to Australia in a lot of ways um, met amazing people everywhere that I've been um, yeah it's 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 really been a, a great experience for me I have to say for listeners overseas I should disclaim Canberra is a lovely city it has a parliament there's things there but I have never heard nor did I ever thought that I would hear the sentence please don't take me away from Canberra <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Thank you, John. I mean, I will I will fly the Canberra flag having lived there for, for many years and say if you have more than two weeks to spend in Australia, then Canberra should be on your destination list. Unless you're really interested in seeing the 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 national capital um and the the, the official institutions. I, I think there's I would I would recommend that you get out and see some of the other Australian uh, landmarks and, and natural environment first. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. And how many weeks do you have to stay in Australia before Coral ends up on your tourism list, John? I mean, I should do I should do my bit for Coral too. I mean, it, it it's changed a lot since I was there. If you're into uh, wineries and and you know high quality wine, now we're talking, John. Duly noted. <laughs> Coral also now has a whiskey distillery Ooh. and 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 chocolate factory. So there are there are reasons to go to to Coral if you're uh, a whiskey connoisseur, a chocolate connoisseur, or you or you like your wines. <laughs> That's great. John, one of the questions that we've been asking all of our guests on this podcast is for a sound that is associated with quantum. And before you give your answer, I'm going to have to throw in a, a runner-up of my own. So listeners may recall back in the first episode of the season, I, I talked a little bit about some um, lab noises, but there is another sound that for me is forever attached to quantum, and it's the sound of a song. And it's a particular part of the refrain of the song in which it says, my supervisor is more super than visor. <laughs> and that song was a song that you wrote, John, when you were a PhD student for, for I don't know, was it a competition or a something? And it was a, a very entertaining part of a fun evening. My wife and I still say that to each other on occasion. It's an iconic phrase. So I, I hope that, you know, as you've traveled through the career uh, of being an academic and you, you're going to be you are the supervisor presumably of students I hope that you can also be really super perhaps even as well as being visor <laughs> <laughs> but do, do you have a sound for us that in your mind is connected with quantum so I, I better touch on the first point first which is uh, you've now increased the number of people who know about that song uh, quite considerably um, I, I've been I've been suppressing it as 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 best I can. Um, my my favorite line from that song is that uh, <laughs> you know I get so lonely. Everybody panics when I mention when I mention quantum electrodynamics. That was that was my favorite line. Song. <laughs> um, it's a good line, but it wasn't as memorable in my mind. <laughs> yeah, it, it's uh, it's been a while since I've thought about that song. Um, the uh, and. and I should say the the image that supported that line 
was a was a photoshop of M matt seller's head on top of superman's body <laughs> carrying my car to a good uh, parking spot uh, at the anu which was always a, a bit of a struggle um the <laughs> but the, the, the second part of your question which is a sound that i associate with with quantum i mean for me i'm an experimentalist and so i i, I actually you know, most of my experience has been in labs that have continually have pumps that they sort of have this low hum running you know with uh, lasers circulating particular fluids um, with cooling systems and also with optical tables that are kind of constantly re-leveling and kind of sh 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 this kind of sound and so uh, like for me it's, it's like silence in the lab immediately indicates that something is wrong something is not right it's it's kind of sort of madeline madame clavel is like something is not right here in the lab if, if the sounds aren't <laughs> continuous um so I, I think yeah for me it's it's now turned into a little bit more of a uh, around a one second repetition uh, boom hiss kind of of the of the pulse tube of the compressor for the helium um, that's going to be the, the kind of the sound of my life. Yeah. <laughs> well, thanks so much, John, for joining us on the podcast. That's been really fun and all the best uh, as you finish building your equipment and all the best for your future of your research. Um, John's tell all song will be linked in the description. <laughs> Yeah, well, I mean, let, let's see. Um, you'll have to talk to my uh, production manager about whether we can get the rights signed off to, to this podcast. But um, uh, that, that, yeah, I, I'm not sure that I'm quite ready for that to make its international debut. Um, but no, thanks very much. It, it, it's a pleasure. Um, you know, happy, happy to to have the discussion today, and hopefully, there's something in, interesting in, in in my rambling today. Thank you so much, John. Thank you all for listening. Hopefully that was clear as quantum or perhaps even clearer. To learn more about quantum physics explained by experts and students in the field, subscribe to Clear as Quantum wherever you get your podcast and share with your friends. Until next time, remember to keep your mind open, but not so open that your brains fall out.